0: John chapter 8, uh, verses 2 through 11. You're just in time, preacher. I was just bragging on you. Uh, uh, Verse 2, let me start. Uh, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and they had set her in the midst... And said to him, Teacher, this woman is caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, And sin no more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Father, we ask that you be here with us. And Father, be our teacher this morning. Pray that you will bless the preparation that's been done. And those who have contributed. And we pray that you will change us today by your word for the sake of your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we get into the context or the content of these verses, we need to deal with one issue in particular. Okay, the one issue is this. These verses before us do not appear in all of the versions of the Gospel of John. Okay? Uh, does anybody by by just chance have a version here today that doesn't have these verses in there? Just by chance, okay. Um, these verses have been treated differently because they are not included in the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Okay, As we know, the original letters that we have that were written were intended uh, to be circulated among the churches. They were read out loud uh, to the churches. And it became then the task of the churches, those within the church, to make copies of the original. And, of course, that was done by hand. No electronic ways of doing that. Well, the church agrees that, and we've, we've talked about this before because we've hit some other uh, verses that uh, may, or not, uh, may or may not be included in all versions. But we all agree, the church uh, agrees that the Bible writers, the Apostle John in this um, specific instance, were all inspired by God and the Holy Spirit, we use that word, superintended the writing of Scripture. Okay, we, we accept that, and we agree with that. And we all agree that only the original manuscripts were inspired. Okay, can we agree on that? Only the original, as John originally wrote it by his hand, and the other writers, okay, were originally, in, or, or excuse me, inspired by the Holy Spirit. okay. So we, we restrict that to only the originals. And we've said before, we have none of the originals. All we have is the earliest copies. Now, the scholars over the years have applied textual criticism and other forms. And we know that not every copy okay, agrees on every detail. Now, what we do know is that with respect to the main substance of Scripture, okay, there is more than a 99% agreement on all the copies, among all the copies. Okay, the main contents and the meat of Scripture. No, no major doctrine of the Christian church is affected by this very, very small number of variances. Okay, so that's, that's good news, right, for us. The, the, the text before us is not in the earliest manuscripts in the Gospel of John. The overwhelming consensus is that among the critics is that it was not a part of the original gospel of John, at least it wasn't a part of right where it is now, where it's included now. It may have been in a different part of uh, John. At the same time, the consensus among the critics is, and the, the textual critics um, is that this account is authentic. It is apostolic. Everyone agrees that it's apostolic, okay? And then it should be contained in every edition of the New Testament. Okay, everybody agrees. Whether whether it belongs here in John or whether in Luke, um, as some other ancient manuscripts have it, it is going to be a question for all the ages. And I think R.C. Sproul put says, but I believe, even though what we just said, that this is nothing less than the very Word of God and I will treat it as such. So we're going to treat it as such. Uh, and it, just as an aside... Um Sproul mentioned, he said, I hope that when you hear this, what I've just shared with you guys, that you don't start thinking that you cannot trust your Bible. He said, I hope you don't think that because, you know, you hear there are discrepancies. He says, I hope you don't think that you can't trust your Bible. He gave an example. Uh, some people would say, well, we don't have the originals of the Bible, so we can't trust it, right? How do we know that we can be sure that the Bible is the Word of God. Well, he gave a great example. um, And these folks just came back from Washington, D.C. But in Washington, D.C., I don't know if you all happen to visit the National Institute of Standards. Did you happen to go by there? It's probably not one of the more flashy places, right? But there is a National Institute of Standards and Technology in Washington, D.C., right? Have you ever, you all know about this? Anybody ever been there? I've never been there. Well, um, among other things, in this place in Washington, D.C., you will find the official yardstick. Okay? An official yardstick. You know, the yard is an American thing, right? Well, in this place is the official This is the one that everyone else is measured off of. Okay? The official yardstick. So Sproul said, you know, it'd be like if somebody went in and destroyed the place. Okay, and you have no official yardstick. You're like saying, well, we don't know what a yard is anymore. Think about that for a minute. Don't you think we have enough copies of a yardstick that we could be pretty confident that we still know what a yard is? Okay, good good example. Okay, uh, and, and a good comparison the only way way uh, Sproul could do it. Well, Oh, we'll move on from here. It makes sense about these verses that they do appear here in John's Gospel because they have, they're have they talking about and John's describing the same treatment to Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes as we've seen in recent chapters. So we're told following the events of the final day of the feast, after spending the night on the Mount of Olives, we read in verse 2, it's John tells us that now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So all's calm. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching and the people are listening to him. Nothing, no ruckus, no confusion. Um, but that was very soon, John tells us, was interrupted by a group of these scribes and these Pharisees. Now, a little bit, uh, we've talked good about the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but uh, about these people, you know, sometimes we we use these terms interchangeably. You know, it's the same group of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Because you often hear them referred to in the same context. Well, they're not the same thing, okay? They're not the same uh, office or however you want to describe it. The, The scribes, for example, okay, were the Jewish theologians. Uh, they were sometimes called lawyers even. Uh, because why? Because they were the experts in interpreting the Old Testament law. Sometimes they were called the lawyers. In other words, uh, being a scribe would have been a career for these people. That would be their job. That would be a career for them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, would probably more accurately described as a party. Okay? a movement of such, uh, of the conservative uh, religious uh, practitioners. Uh, The term Pharisee itself means separated one. This group, this party of people came into being, came into existence, and developed during the intertestimonial period. Um, And they were committed, as you know, to spiritual, moral, and theological reform. Uh, They had committed themselves to a passionate obedience of the law, And were called the separated ones. Or the Pharisees. R.C. put it this way. He says they were the Puritans of ancient Israel. Okay that's the Pharisees. Uh, But not all Pharisees were scribes. And not all scribes were Pharisees. And so John tells us. Here that it's the scribes and the Pharisees. Who come to Jesus. And we read in verse 3 through 5. It's this group of people. The scribes and the Pharisees. Brought to him a woman caught. In adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Well, let's talk about the law, since they mentioned the law of Moses. The law of Moses did outlaw. Adultery. And they defined adultery as relations, sexual relations between two people, and at least one of them had to be married to someone else. And the penalty, of, uh, penalty was execution of both parties. Okay? However, stoning was not specifically uh, required. We find it in Deuteronomy 22 22. Uh, also under Jewish law if a man or woman was engaged and not yet married and was unfaithful with someone else now that was also considered adultery but in that case execution by stoning was commanded was prescribed that's in Deuteronomy 22:24 so it may be in this case we don't know for sure but it may be that the woman was engaged and not yet married therefore they applied the sentence of stoning. It's very possible, right? Let will ask you a question. And R.C. brought this up. He says, I see one thing missing here. Do you see it? The other party. The law says what? Both parties. John tells us was, she was caught in the very act. So what does that tell you? He was there. So, where is he? So, in Pakistan, it worked the same way. Islamic culture, only that if it was a woman caught, all they had to do was make an accusation. I mean, it didn't even have to be true the woman would get penalized. But the man, you had to have three witnesses to the adultery mm-hmm. to prosecute or take the punishment from the So, you could tell what direction that uh, typically moves. Right. This is just a fallen world fallen world so you all see this something's missing the other guy the man he's not here so again according to the law we just said it he's subject to execution as well so what happened to him well the bible does not tell us okay where he was maybe maybe since they caught him in the act maybe he fled maybe he ran away they couldn't catch him right um maybe maybe the woman is being becoming a victim of sexual bias by the Pharisees. maybe it's possible that the man was known by them and maybe of some such importance, and they didn't want to get him in trouble. okay? All these are possible, and if we're just speculating, we don't really know, right? But what we do know is that the scribe and the Pharisees didn't bring this this woman to Jesus because they were zealous. For the law, John is clear about their motive, and, and Calvin adds here. He says, "But their intention was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace, that he might ap- that he might appear to be fickle and unsteady." What's John say? John says it in six. Uh, the first part of uh, verse six, he says, "They said this. They brought him again. They're not zealous for the law. They said this that they might have something of which." To accuse Him. They were testing Him. So this woman was being uh, u- being used. In an attempt to trap Jesus. They had hoped. That Jesus would take a stand. Against the law. Giving them some reason. To accuse Him. That's why they're here. Now. To whom would they make. Their accusations. Okay. Let's dig a little deeper. Remember. Israel at this time under Roman occupation. Well, the Romans permitted the nations that they occupied, such as this, to uh, have self rule, to exercise self rule. But, uh, and they, uh, so the ones that they conquered, but they did not allow those nations to exercise the death penalty in capital cases. So if that was to be done, then they had to go through the Roman judicial system of course that's that is why um that jesus was sentenced by who pontius pilate he was not sentenced by caiaphas the high priest he didn't have that right he couldn't sentence someone to death the roman government had to do that that's why you notice the difference there and that's why it was so important so so these guys had laid a very clever trap they thought this thing through they cared nothing about the woman or the man this is a trap for jesus we got it. We got to figure out a way. I'm sure this was premeditated. They planned this out. Probably knew the woman ahead of time. They probably knew the man. Okay. <laughs> they probably knew, hey, we like him, so we're not going to get him in trouble, but we're going to get her in trouble and we're going to trap Jesus. And we got this great trap for him. So if 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 Jesus were to say, stone the woman, right? what the law says, then they would do what? They'd go straight to the Roman authorities and say, hey, look, This teacher here is saying we should execute her without going through your system. Well, then the Romans are going to have a problem with Jesus, right? But if Jesus said, don't stone her, then they would run back to the Sanhedrin and say, hey, this Jesus, Jesus, he's a heretic. He denies the law of Moses. So in their mind, no matter how he answered, he was going to be in trouble. We got him. We got it figured out. We don't like this man. We hate him. We got a, we got a great trap for him. No, why no matter what he says, we got it. He's gonna be in trouble with the Romans or is he gonna be in trouble with the Sanhedrin? Sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? So what did he do? What did Jesus do? Well he did something quite incredible. Second half of verse six, it says, But Jesus, so they, they've asked him the question. So but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. This is the only mention, by the way, before we get any further, this is the only time in all of Scripture that is mentioned that Jesus wrote anything. This is the only time. We know that Jesus could write, he was literate. But he never wrote an autobiography. He never wrote an epistle. So why did he choose to write on this occasion? You know, the scene, if you can imagine the scene, um, they're they're here. Uh, Jesus is teaching. They bring this woman caught in the very act. Some say that, you know, that they, to embarrass her, that they brought her there. If she was caught in the very act, then... Might not have a huddle, 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 uh, whole lot of clothes on. So they—they they might. Have, this may be the scene, okay? It could be a very interesting scene here, right? But but so Jesus kneels down, almost like a, as uh, described it, as like a, a sandlot quarterback, right? He's in the huddle. He sits down on the ground. He's drawing out plays in the sand, you know, like a sandlot quarterback would do. Well, the, so that's the, that's the scene. Well, the burning question is, what did he write? What did he write? Now, before we answer that question or attempt to even talk about that question, we need to be very careful, careful about speculation. Okay? Because John doesn't tell us what he wrote. We don't, we don't, we don't know, right? We can only speculate. And what Calvin said in his commentary on uh, Romans about speculation, he says, When God closes his holy mouth, we should desist from inquiry. Helpful advice. And Sinclair Ferguson said it another way. I've I've told you all this one before. Never ask the Bible a question it is not prepared to answer. It's very good advice, isn't it? Very good advice. But many have speculated over the years, and it's it's okay to think about it. Um, uh, Some say that he was making a reference to the law of God. Because they were bringing up the law. He was making uh, reference to the law of God. Some would see a reference to a practice in the Roman courts. When before the judge would give his verdict. He would write it down and then announce it. Okay. Speculation again. Even others say that he was just doodling on the ground to gather some time. Uh, Calvin even uh, said that he was. He could have been. Again this is Speculation. That kind of building on what Sproul said about dueling on the ground, just basically saying, what, 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 you guys, it's not even important what you're saying because you got the wrong attitude. He would just, I'm just, I'm kind of ignoring you almost. We don't know. Okay, we don't know for sure what he was writing on the ground. And, and, and Sproul went on to say, he says, his favorite theory, personally, is linked to what a Jesus eventually says to them in verse 7. What is his word? Second half of verse 7. He says, He who he, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then afterwards he returned to writing. R.C. said, My guess is that he looked at one of the accusers because he knows them, right? He knows who they are. And on the ground as he was writing, he wrote down embezzler. Then maybe he looked at another one and wrote murderer. Or perhaps he was even being more direct. Perhaps he was writing names of women Elizabeth, Mary, Sarah. Perhaps he was being even more direct because he knew their hearts and he was showing them instances of the same sin in their own very lives. It's very possible, isn't it? So when he said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone first. He was dealing with heart issues. It's very possible. Again, we're speculating, so we have to be careful, right? We're speculating. We know that we know what happens. Whatever, whatever he, it was, impactful. Okay, we know that for sure, right? Because they leave one by one. You know, when he said that about without sin. He may have been thinking about, and I'm sure he was, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 6-7, uh, seven, which, read which reads this way. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Going kind of back, similar to what Ms. Deb said about living in Pakistan. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall, and this is where the point here, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people, so that they shall put away evil from among you. So this, this it, it, in short, if, if you were uh, going to accuse this woman of a capital offense, worthy of death, then you've got to be one of the first ones to throw a stone. Hmm. You have to, okay men, that's what you said, you brought her here, I know you're testing me, but I'm kind of turning the tables on you a little bit. If, if you got to be the first one to throw a stone, you got to participate in the execution. That's basically what he's telling them. And he, and he, and he qualified it, right? He said, let the one among you without sin throw the first stone at her. Now, in qualifying this, he, he was not trying to destroy the Jewish system of law. Okay? He was not trying to do that. What he was doing is addressing the heart issue of these people. They were bloodthirsty. They wanted to shame and to punish a person who had fallen. They were ready justice. Justice must be served. In other words, they had no concept of the grace of God. No concept at all. Now. It's not. And this, we're going to say this. Because theres you can take something away from this. It would be incorrect. It's, by doing this. Jesus is not making a point. It's, he's not saying that it's wrong. To punish criminals for their crimes. Okay. By, by doing this. He's not abolishing that. Okay. But it is wrong. To convene what we would call a kangaroo court, right? We see this, Jesus is all too familiar with a, a, a kangaroo court being convened about Him. Well, you might think, okay, in the sense, taking what Jesus just said, He's saying, okay, He is without sin, cast the first stone. So, you know, if I were to just apply that unilaterally, across the board, then, how, you know, in justice, how am I ever going to find witnesses or prosecutors or judges without sin? I'll never be able to convict anybody of a crime or prosecute. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. And Calvin helps us with this because Calvin answers this challenge to, to this, uh, what Jesus is saying. And Calvin had these words. He says, to that, um, to that critique here, I reply this. This is not an absolute and unlimited prohibition by which Christ forbids sinners to do their duty in correcting the sins of others. But by his word, he only reproves the hypocrites who mildly flatter themselves and their vices, but are excessively severe in even the act of part of felons and censuring others. I think that's helpful. I think what, and, and Jesus, because Jesus is getting at the heart issue of these people. He knows they're hypocrites. He knows they care nothing about this woman. They care nothing about justice. They just hate Jesus. And so R.C. has, he says, I believe here that Jesus was dealing with the manifest hypocrisy of those who were trying to judge this woman. Even some of them guilty of the very same sin themselves, possibly. Okay? So we see a, a hypocritical attitude, a judgmental attitude. Well, notice here that Jesus did not hedge Okay, between the Jewish law or the Roman law. Who did He side with? He sided with Moses, didn't He? He gave the verdict. The woman was guilty, should be stoned. Then he, but then He examined the executioners and found them lacking. Among the qualifications that He gave... Who is the only one who is now qualified to throw the first stone? He himself. He is the only one without sin. He disqualified every one of them. Verses 8 and 9. It says... And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Presumably, he's continuing to write whatever he was writing before. And then those who heard it, the ones there, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So remember, they had conspired I would assume and presume this was premeditated. This was intentional. They're here. We know that. John tells us they're here to trap Jesus. They came in here all puffed up with pride and hypocrisy and judgment. We got him now. We got him trapped. There's no way out. And every one of them with this in their mind, they've come to trap Christ, but they've had the very consciousness of each one of them have been pierced by Jesus' words. That's what John says, right? They're conscious, convicted by their conscience. They all, whatever Jesus wrote and combined with the words that he said was effective, wasn't it? Completely effective. They all went away, the accusers, the ones that stoned her, they all went away one by one. Now, Before we leave this for a moment, you know, their conscience have been convicted. They're standing in the presence of who? The Messiah. The one who is here to offer forgiveness and salvation. He said his his He gives the living water. His words are the bread of life. What would have a much better... that they, they left Him. They left His presence. How sad. Because He has the very answer to, so they can deal with their own conscience. He's the only source. He's the, he is the source. He is truth. He is, he is the answer. But they all left. One by one. They had a convicted conscience, but they left. And they should have stayed with Him and said, Lord, forgive us. Shouldn't they? So they should have done. Lord, forgive me. I'm an adulterer. I'm an embezzler. I'm a murderer. I need forgiveness. My own conscience is telling me that. But they didn't do that. They left. One by one. Calvin said, For we ought to be affected by the judgment of God in such a manner that we shall not seek a place of concealment to avoid the presence of the judge. They're standing in front of the judge. But we should rather go directly to him. In order to implore his forgiveness. Don't run from him. When your conscience is convicted. Don't run from him. Run to him. And fall at his feet. And beg and pray. Lord please forgive me. I'm a sinner. I deserve death. Verses. uh, Let's continue. Verses 10 and the first part of 11. When Jesus had raised Himself up and saw no one but the woman, He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. The, these words recorded in this verse are the only words that we have that we know of that were spoken of the woman. It's the, the only thing that we know that she said. But it's very significant that she called Jesus Lord. Now. The Greek word here is kurios. Y'all have heard this word before. It has a wide range of meanings. Uh, the lowest form of, or use of this word. Could have been just the way she was saying. No one sir. Could have been a polite way to address a man. Could have, she was saying no one sir. Or maybe. By the grace of God. In an encounter with the Messiah. That her eyes had been opened. And maybe she understood. She was in the presence of the Savior. We, can, we, we won't know. Right? We don't know. Um, the answer to that question. But in response to this. In response to the, the, the question he poses. Has no one condemned you? She said no one Lord. In response to this. And this was R.C.'s words. Maybe the sweetest words. That any human being. Could ever hear. From the lips of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Hmm. I'll quote Sproul here for a minute. He says. If you can't relate to those words. Then your heart has been hardened. Because each one of us comes to God. Like this woman. Guilty, ashamed, naked, exposed. But Christ clothes us with the cloak of his righteousness, covering our nakedness and our shame, and says to us, Neither do I condemn you. Then what? Now that grace has abounded, should sin still abound more? I'll repeat with me the words of Paul. No, absolutely not. May it not be. What did Jesus say in the last of verse 16? He says, Go and sin no more. In other words, to the woman, don't do this anymore you need to leave this life behind you need to walk away from this you need to put this behind me you don't stand here condemned you stand here forgiven you can be forgiven you can lead a new life but you have to leave this behind this is not a do whatever you want i'm going to forgive you is it that's not what jesus is saying jesus is not teaching some cheap grace where oh yeah i'll just forgive you just keep coming back all i got to do is ask jesus for forgiveness I don't have to worry about changing my heart or my lifestyle or my motives or my words. He's just going to forgive me every time I go back to Him because that's what He does. There are some people who think like that, aren't there? That is not the grace that's taught in the Bible. Matthew Henry, about these verses, he says, "...in this matter..." It said, Christ attended to the great work with which He has had to come into the world. That was to bring sinners to repentance, not to destroy, but to save. That's a beautiful words from Him. Jesus is here to bring sinners to repentance. He's not here to destroy. He's here to save sinners. Any uh, questions or any comments about this lesson this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning acknowledging that we are all sinners. Father, if there be hypocrisy in our own lives, we pray that You would weed it out. Father, we pray that You would deal with each one of us in the way that only You can. Father, where our conscience needs convicting, we ask that You use Your Word through the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Father, we know that when we come to You in reverence and repentance and ask for forgiveness, Father, You are faithful. Father, we thank you for the work on the Son on the cross. Father, we thank you for salvation. For without you acting, there would be no way. We would be condemned to hell forever. Father, we are in your debt and your gratitude for everything. So, Father, we pray that you would use each one of us. Father, change us daily by your word. Even now, Father, prepare our hearts as we go into worship. Father, if there's anything in our hearts right now that's going to distract us, if there's any unrepentant sin in our lives, Father, may we confess it now. We go before you, we join in the great and worship service before the throne room of God, and we will be holy and acceptable before you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.